Andrew Steves is the uh, co-publisher, typographer, bottle washer <laughs> <laughs> at Gasper Press in Kentville, Nova Scotia. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Yeah, thank you. Start off with inspiration and a bit of history of the firm. Well, the firm has been going since 1997 when we started just out of thin air with no background, no knowledge, no training. My background is in criminology and a little bit of English literature and I was working doing freelance journalism largely. And Gary's background was in forestry and divinity and he was working writing accounting software for local farmers. And so for some strange reason we thought it would be smart to start a literary magazine and publish some poetry. And uh, I have no idea why. I, I, looking back yeah, it's, it, it, it baffles me that we ever thought that would be something that would earn our, our, our bread. Or so, could. Yeah, you know, I've heard this sort of similar kind of thing before from other people getting into publishing that they started a magazine or they worked on a student newspaper or something, and it just kind of catapults itself forward with this kind of non-self-reflective approach. Because if you were self-reflective, you'd realize the insanity of what yeah. you're embarking upon. A lot of the small uh, publishing houses and the bigger ones had their own little magazines as a way of attracting new talent. And that was exactly it. I really enjoyed the periodical business. I, I liked the constant fresh start. You know, you'd work towards a deadline, you'd create a, an item, and you would put it out there in the world, and then you'd start on the next one. Yeah. And you'd make these subtle corrections to how you handled the whatever you goofed last time, you'd try not to goof this time. And th I missed that, you know, because we did the magazine for about, say, four years. And what was the magazine called? It was called the Gaspar Review, actually. In the meantime, you know, I think that in that first year we published maybe two books, and one was papers from a symposium at the university here. What was that called? We want a history, but we also, we're going to put on a collector's hat. So that would be a choice yeah. volume for the collector to have. It's called the Halliburton Bicentenary Chaplet or something like that. It was it was a collection of papers. It had papers by people like George Eli Clark, Richard Davies, who's a well-known scholar on, on Halliburton, the architect Alan Penny. You know, there's some really important papers in that, and it was it was a terribly done book. We didn't really know what we were up to editing. The design was dreadful. We just had no background. So we really started in way over our heads and learned to swim very quickly. I have a sister who actually studied book design at yeah. uh, the Art College, and at that time she was working as a designer for Goose Lane Editions in Fredericton, doing some, some nice work for them. I realized very quickly that I had more facility probably to design books than Gary did because at that point in the early days we were kind of doing it together. So very early on labor started to divide. I also realized that if I was going to go home for Christmas dinner I'd rather not look foolish and I started looking around uh, at other books, not books about design but just at books generally to try mm -hmm. to figure out how they worked. And, and which ones you liked and, and why. Yeah, exactly. The other thing I did about that same time, within about a year of starting, was I discovered what was then called the Dawson Room at Dalhousie, which was a collection of printing materials that was put together by a guy named Robert Dawson. And it's now housed at NASCAD at the Nova Scotia Art College. Went into one of their adult night classes, setting type and playing with letterpress, essentially. Hands-on thing? It was, yeah. And yeah. I, I didn't last. I mean, I'm just, I've never been good at taking classes in hands-on stuff. So I, I went for a couple of them and, and encountered the, the bookbinder Joe Landry who was, was teaching it. Stayed just long enough to then buy myself my own press and start dabbling. But what I did was I looked at letterpress as a way of learning about typography and design. If you learn the discipline required to handset type, the computer's not a problem after that. You learn patterns of, of how to think about the problem of setting a page and, and the discipline of kind of planning ahead. Yeah, so I jumped in that way. You came across some books that 
you didn't like the looks of, and you came across some I, books I that you did the like the looks of. I would say the majority of the books I came across, I didn't like the and looks of. And you what, said, I can do better than that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, particularly when you look at Canadian literary publishing. I mean, I, I from the beginning was kind of struck by the relative ineptness of the majority of what's out there. Like a Nancy, you know, a lot of them are really awful, aren't they? Well, I don't want to pull out a Nancy uh, <coughs> particularly, though they, they fall into the same traps that, that the majority of people do. Which are what? Well... There's a general laziness. I mean, essentially, we, we look at the inside typography is, is easy to do, so nobody pays any attention to it. They just kind of, you know, you, you hand it to an intern mm -hmm. or somebody, and they just kind of take the same pages, essentially, that the author gave them and sort of, you know, duplicate that and use half-inch indents because that's what the Microsoft Word preset was, you know, or, you know, and they, they just set them, Away they spit go. that out. Yeah. And then with the covers, they're equally lazy because you probably pay more money for setting the cover than you do for the inside particularly with poetry, but, you know, you go find some stock image or something that is a lazy shortcut to evoke a feeling or a sensibility, and then you slap some type on it. And, it, you know, in some ways, the advent of cheap color printing has been the downfall of design, because it, it, it's just this simple shortcut. You know, find a color picture, throw it on there, it'll be fine. And then there's some stunning work done using that process, and there's some stunning work done using photography. Mm -hmm. But it's become this kind of, this equals quality, and in fact, it's completely the opposite. And so one of the things that we dove into really quick was using uh, textured papers, using type more than image, and using uh, images that we commissioned and that weren't necessarily processed color reproduction. Mm -hmm. That so were what? Perhaps more uh, customized to the actual content. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing is that we tried to use images only when images were appropriate to represent the work properly, as opposed to taking a book of poems, which is really a whole bunch of short individual pieces of things about a whole bunch of different stuff. Rarely do you have a such a dominant theme that mm -hmm. you can really grab an image that sort of is that. Yeah. We try to stop being lazy about that stuff. And we the, the other side of it is that we realized that because everybody was splashing, creating this sort of cultural cliche of what a book cover looked like, that the best thing we could do is run the other direction. So while everyone was yelling, that if we whispered, we'd actually be talking a lot more loud, you know, more clearly and, and, and louder, you know, in the culture. This was a knowing choice. And the other reality is, to be completely frank, these discoveries better suited the technology that we were amassing around us. You mean the letterpress technology? Well, the letterpress, but also the type of offset technology that we were bringing on board. I mean, we were not set up to do amazing process color reproduction. It just yeah. wasn't what our presses were good for. And so it's a chicken-egg thing. In one sense, did our philosophy evolve around using our, the tools we had well? Or did we evolve the philosophy and the tools resulted? I don't even know which. I think it's a little both. Overall, it was definitely a resistance against a sort of mediocrity that we saw very much out there. You know, I, I can only really speak to Canadian literature because that's what I where I make my bed, but just generally in, in the printing and publishing trade. That's what motivates a lot of great uh, people is, you know, you see something out there, whatever field it happens to be, and there's something inside you that says, you know what, I can do a lot better than that. Yeah. There are a lot of influences uh, of our press uh, that are older, but we didn't really have to go back or across the ocean to find influences that showed that that type of work functions well. You know, looking at early Porcupine Squill, looking at, at early ECW, which was printed by Porcupine Squill, looking at Coach House, obviously. Mm -hmm. A lot of these guys have, have sort of moved over to the other camp and, and often find ways to do it well, to do glossy, laminated color covers well. But we found more inspiration in, in the early work that these guys were doing when they were mucking around learning. What about earlier than that? We talked prior to 
going on air here about the uh, arts and crafts movement, uh, William Morris, fine press movement, some of the small presses in the United States, uh, Stone and Kimball, Copeland and Day. The, the first camp was fine press, private press. The second was trying to meld more commercial approach to that fine press sensibility, and it seems to me that that's a good definition of what you've been doing. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot to learn from the uh, arts and crafts movement. My sympathies in it tend more towards Dove's press than than Kelmscott, simply because of the typographic sensibility. More austere, isn't it? It's less uh, less flamboyant. That's right. Morris did a lot for publishing and, and type design generally, but the contradictions are sometimes hard to stomach. You know, mm-hmm. a man that talks about the clarity of the of the page and, and you know readability and <laughs> all the curly cues. You know. I know, and then goes crazy. You know, with with this and making beautiful and dense, impenetrable pages that that are not really about reading. And I grew up in rural New Brunswick. I grew up reading Time magazine and Newsweek in the local newspaper, and uh, there wasn't a whole lot around for books if, once you get past the encyclopedias and the Bible. We were not a, a book household, and it's not that learning was discouraged or anything like that. It was it wasn't an oppressive environment, but it just wasn't part of the show. So it's more you want form and function to work together in a utilitarian way. There's a big piece of Tommy Douglas and Thoreau in my sensibility, and so yeah, a book is a improvised explosive device. <laughs> Frankly, it's something that can sit a very long time waiting if it's made properly and if it's designed to do its job properly it can have an incredible effect when someone finally gets around to opening it up and reading it where so much of the fine press movement stuff is beautiful and as inspiring as it is it was really about possession and it wasn't so much about knowledge and learning and and about community and culture and so I kind of can never really entirely give myself over to lauding it as much as I, I see there's a lot to learn there. For me it was more that next generation. There was a, a generation of guys and they included the Stanley Morrisons and the Francis Mennells and the Simon Olivers and the, and the publishers that they worked with, you know, who were looking at ways of using the new machines, the monotype machine was coming out of it, you know, revolutionizing the way in which people could set type mechanically and they were designing typefaces that would work on these machines. And you've got a, an entire culture, you know, happy for cheap goods but thinking, well, handmade is still best, and uh, you can't really do a good book this way. And you got guys like Francis Mano and the guys at Penguin who are saying, no, if you hire good designers, people that have an eye to the future and to the past, both, you can take these tools and you can make extraordinarily well-made, inexpensive things for the masses. That will last. Exactly. And and that perform their duty, that do their job, that bring these ideas to the public. That's very much the case with Alan Lane. It was bringing important works of literature and then nonfiction to the masses so that it was affordable for one thing, but as you say, well designed as well. Yeah, and those early penguins were portable and and yet they were on good paper and they were they were sewn and they they were made to last more than one reading. We weren't quite at the point yet of seeing a book as a disposable object. But it was critical that they could get out there to real people for, you know, the equivalent of couple packs of cigarettes you know, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. We want them to be as affordable as that. They put them on the railway stations. Yeah, and for me there's an incredible tension there because I have a great love of letterpress printing and I think that it's still the best technology for honoring that, that human gesture of a letter form. I think mm. it, it communicates it best, it, it preserves it best. Can you expand on that? 
Well, letterpress printing is where you have a raised surface of ink and you are impressing that into paper. So you're making a three-dimensional representation of that letter form. You know, it's not just the ink in the bottom of that impression, it's on the sides. And it, mm. it's, it's sculptural, you know, not to get too precious about it. It's there's a permanence to it, I suppose. Depending on your materials, you can make, you can do a bad job of that, just as you can do a bad job of printing with a, an offset press or a, or a laser printer. That comes down to choices you make as a craftsman or a manufacturer. Mm-hmm. But uh, I still think that there's something about the way type functions in that arena that's different from the flat land of offset printing or printing with toner or, or ink jets or so on. What is that though? Because so many people say that. So many people say, you know, I love the, the, the feel of running my hand over the rather press. Okay, so because there's it's that. A, yeah, what because is, it's what a real thing in a sense. And whereas a flat page is a picture of a thing. Like that, that's part of it, and, you know, without getting too, too abstract. That's right, that when you are printing using an offset lithography, which is the most common method used by trade publishers these days, or even when you're using a laser printer or, or a high-speed photocopy, a docu-type machine like we're using now more and more in print and demand, or in short runs of poetry, God save us. In those cases, what you have in front of you is a, is a picture of a thing. But when you take type or any kind of raised surface and you transfer ink, Everyone is an original. It's a real tactile, three-dimensional sculptural thing that lives in the same kind of time space that we do. Reading is all about light being bounced back in our eye from the page, and, and the way in which those pages refract light is very different than a screen, than a, a flat page of an offset. And none of these are bad technologies. It's just a question of, for me, trying to find, as often as I can, a way to use the best technology I, that I know of for doing the job, and balancing that against cost. I'm speaking with Andrew Steves, who's the uh, co-founder, publisher, the Gaspro Press in uh, Kentville, Nova Scotia. You've been in the news lately, well, within the last six months, with the Giller Prize. Congratulations on that. That must have been just a, well, what was that for you? It was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The phone rang a bit more often than it might usually. We had a hectic little spell there, for sure, yeah. Yeah, it was hard to keep up with, yeah, with everything. I know that at the time I was thinking, you know, stick by your guns, just produce the book that you want to produce, and if it takes a long time to come out and comes out in, in, in dribs and drabs, that's the way the book was intentionally put together in the first place. Yeah, for sure. That's the book that I want. Mm. I don't want another book. But when you're looking at the demand of 30 or 40 or 50,000 copies, that would take a few years to, to meet, I'm assuming. It would, for sure, yeah. Philosophically, what did you what did you go through? What what was your thought process, and how did you justify what in in, in the end seemed to be a, a a good result for everyone? What's interesting about all that is that there wasn't a lot of hand wringing or angst about any of it, which I guess is the result of having a pretty hammered out philosophy about what's important. And we come back to it, but I mean that the bigger challenge was managing expectation and perception, right? That's where the real headache was. What, what does that mean, managing expectations? Well, there were a whole lot of people out there, or at least the media would have you think so, who had a different idea about what was important. So managing those expectations becomes part of your job as a publisher, because you can't just tell people to get lost, close the door. You are in a public forum, and you need to answer those questions and try to make sense of what you're doing to people for whom it might never make sense. So that's what I mean by managing expectations. You didn't sell your soul, though. You basically oh, did a business deal 
that provided this text. The sentimentalist. See, m my take would be, if I want to read it right away, then yeah, I want I want it on demand. I want an e-book. I want it. Yeah, yeah. But I also want to see how the book was originally intended to look, and I want that original book as well. Yeah. Well, it, what happened is that a, something went from being, because of a relatively arbitrary event, and there's nothing more arbitrary than prizes, let's be clear about that. It's a gift. A book went, yeah, it's a piano falling from the sky. A book went from having one sort of life to having an entirely different one that had almost nothing to do with its original life. The reincarnation. We had to kind of find a way to respond to that, that still uh, answered our own values and interests. It was incredibly important to me that no book says Gaspar Press on it that isn't published yeah. here, that isn't made here, and isn't made by us. So you don't that, want, to, do want to dilute your... I'm just not interested. <laughs> you know, I'm not making widgets. I'm making these improvised explosive devices. And this one blew up very, very big. <laughs> so that was, for me, that was a huge part of it that was, a, from the beginning, a complete non sequitur to the other publishers that were on the, on the list, to really everyone except Bibliophiles. Yeah. And the author, who also, also got it, you know, which is why she was here in the first place. That book won an Alcune Award for Best Design Book. Very category, few people knew that. The small presses never win in. I yeah. mean, if you look at usually who wins in the fiction categories of the Alcuans, and we have drawers full of, Alcu of Alcuans, but they're largely in the other categories. I think that was the first first place I'd ever taken in fiction. Because for all of their sloth in other areas, the one place that the multinational presses do tend to pour some money is into the fiction because there's some mm -hmm. prestige in it. Mm -hmm. And they still make sloppy books very often, but but at least they have good covers, and they probably hired someone who knows a castle from a garment to set it, you know. So they, they tend to do well in it. So, yeah, it was, it was a nice thing. And it's not a very straight-up design. I mean, it's, it's very much uh, indebted to Eric Gill and his uh, sort of ragged margin, and it's set in one of his typefaces. Joanna, actually, just by coincidence. So it wasn't a sort of automatic home run as a winner there. It was sort of a funny pick. And frankly, as far as the Giller goes, it was a funny pick there too. It was yeah. it was a, a very peculiar jury. They picked a, a book that they felt passionately about, even though they knew if they did that it was from a small press and that you know it hadn't sold well up to that point. Yeah. And, and they did what they were supposed to do. That kind of behavior has the potential to sort of revive one's faith in a, in a jury. In the system. Plus you had a lovely little bit of controversy around it with one of the judges tipping off a publisher in England beforehand. That, that was very disheartening actually, yeah, and, and ended up costing us a lot of money probably in the long haul, just because we get sort of cut out of, uh, out of all that stuff. And, and you mean because you can't negotiate Well, we didn't end up having those, those rights, and the, and the early tip-off from, from the juror actually caused us to make some agreements early on with the author and, and her new agent who suddenly arrived that we wouldn't have probably made had had they had the same amount of information we had. So, what sorry what does that mean? Well, simply that when a juror tips off a certain number of people and then they use that information to make business deals and then and you had no idea that she right. was, yeah yeah okay yeah. that was a little unfortunate yeah but um, you know it's life great book story and a great book to get your hands on too. It is, get back to your original question, I mean yeah. what we ended up doing was we decided to work with Douglas and McIntyre and I, I've had a long time relationship with Scott McIntyre personally and a um, great deal of respect for him. That's out on the west coast. They're, yeah, they're yeah. in Vancouver, they have a Toronto yeah. office as well. But they're really the biggest Canadian independent 
publisher that's working in that old humanist tradition, making good books because they feel they're important and making them well. So while we look very different as companies, our hearts are pulses in a similar way. And they do great design. They've got Peter Cocking, who's a, a great designer, and a, a number of other people, but he sort of heads it up. So, you know, when Johanna won that prize, it was clear that we weren't interested in compromising how we were going to make books here. What was important was getting that book out still to a readership in a timely fashion. And we had to find a way to do that without making compromise. And this was a way to do it without making compromise. Yeah. Let them make a different edition of the book. Exactly, yeah. So and you, you can got in parallel. make your choice. So lots of people, you know, in fact, something like 5,000 or so people decided to wait, you know, yeah. and get our book. Some of them may have bought that one, too. Well, it's a kind of a neat experience to have them both. I think so. And not an expensive experience to have them both. And it's funny because, you know, during that whole thing, much was made about the unavailability of our edition, which I always found a little frustrating because it, at any given time, our edition was available somewhere in this country. Yeah. You know, 20 in Hamilton today <laughs> and, and 50 in Vancouver tomorrow. You know, like, the, but uh, if you listen to the people at Chapters Indigo, they would want you to think that the book was, was unavailable because they didn't have it. And... Um, you know, that wasn't accidental. They, they didn't have it. They had no leverage with us because they'd have burned their bridges a long time ago. They're, they're a bad client and they mistreated literary presses from the get-go. And not even with any particular malice. I mean, you know, they're just indifferent. They're a bad fit for the majority of what happens culturally in this country. They, they just don't get they're not part of that show. And so for us, I was going to be shipping books to Brian Prince in Hamilton, uh, you know, Ben McNally in Toronto, mm -hmm. and these, these people who had been supporting literary publishers and where real people, real readers go mm -hmm. to get books, not people who want it. And their hands yeah, connection. And that was what I think that, if anything in the whole process was a bit unsettling for me, it was the extent to which something I cared intimately about was so easily sort of turned into a commodity only for mm -hmm. a lot of other people. And um, I just didn't have any patience for that. But it was interesting to get to talk about how this show works on a, a national forum like that. And lucrative? It certainly didn't hurt the author. There, there was a, a lot of accusations during the week after she'd won when we'd already brokered a deal, but we're trying to find her in Istanbul uh, to agree to the deal that we'd made so we could announce it. The deal took less than 24 hours to make, but it took me a week to get everything lined up. But no, we certainly make some money on it. And, um, and so will she. So now, now the time where I change gears. Sure. We've identified two books so far. The, the Giller award-winning book, which is now probably a three $400 book, the first edition of that. Yeah, uh, I don't even, ha I don't know how many are out there, yeah. And the very first book that you published. What else, obviously, I guess each, each book that comes out is, is like it's, it's unique, it's its own, it's a child. But from the perspective of a book collector going after books that you're most proud of, let's say, mm. what do you think they should go for? Well, let's back up for a second and talk about the sentimentalists because there's some interesting things about that that maybe I should mention. One is that that first edition uh, has some things about it that are unique relative to the subsequent ones. We do our books with a jacket on it and then an interior cover. In the first edition of Sentimentalist, there's actually a, a tan color inner cover. And with the subsequent editions, they all move over to a black cover inside. But some of the second printings still have a tan cover. There's yeah. probably existed six or so states of just three printings out right. there because of the, the Using way sheets are mixed yeah. with, you know, yeah. and, and all this sort of stuff. So there's, if you're looking for first editions, check carefully. Yeah. And, and there'll be you know, a variety of 
states at which the book can be found. And if you're a real diehard collector, there's some, th there's some interesting things. So what do we look for if it's the, the first, yeah. uh, an uninterrupted first printing of that is, That's is right. the genuine first edition? That's right. And of that, there are, I would say, I don't, I don't have the exact number on top of my head, but there'll be probably less than 600 of those out there. And they will have a sort of a tan color cover inside. On the letterpress jacket, there's two colors in the spine instead of just black. There's also the second color is used on the Gaspro logo, which I discontinued after a while because it was a pain to sort of keep inked properly. And the, the edition number at the back will indicate. But some of the second printings have that tan cover too. You can't use that as your guide alone. But you've got a number line in there with a one and That's a two. Right. Yeah, okay. And so we've, been, we've been, we're always very faithful with those to make sure that they're done properly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The, the, the interesting thing here with this, with this is that I, I think this is going to go down as one of the great books, book stories in the history of Canadian book collecting. <laughs> Especially someday when all the stories come out. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> there's more. <laughs> get yours now because I think it's only going to uh, become, become more, more and more yes well it's a scare I mean it, yeah the, the scarcity but just the, the the lore around it too is it's and the fact that it won a literary award and, and a design yeah, award and it's the first time that a small a truly literary publisher walked away with that prize and you know I don't know and I think it was Noah Richler uh, writing in the National Post referred to us as baffling because it was clear that we didn't give a toss. <laughs> so we would just want to get on with our business, which is true. Yeah. I mean, I, I get out of bed in the morning and what I want to do is make books. Yeah. And uh, hanging out in Toronto at big parties is really not on my agenda. You know, it's great for the author, but, but as far as other collectible books, another book I think of interest is, would be Thomas Wharton's Logograph, lar largely because it's about books. But it's also a very small format, has a has a, a wrapper around the entire book, and it uh, was shortlisted for the Dublin Prize, and it never got picked up by an American publisher. It never got picked up in Europe, despite the Dublin Prize nomination. So, what was the run on that? Most of our first runs, they tend to be sort of under a thousand. So, if you pick a Gasper Press first edition, you know, up, you know that you're going to have a book that's got a, a very contained run that way. It may be interesting to collect by author, you look at someone like Jan Zwicky or Robert Bringhurst. Bringhurst himself being a world-renowned type Absolutely. Uh, designer yeah, and I mean, uh, He authority. wrote the book that everyone yeah. uses now to teach in, uh, about this. And Robert doesn't co-design with many people, but he and I design books together frequently, and uh, I think successfully, and I've sort of won all QMs together. And I don't like designing with other people. Robert's about the only person I've ever tried that with, and, and even then it's kind of a funny kind of relationship. So the Bringhurst stuff is good. The other thing is if you look at Bringhurst, we've resold a lot of his books in other markets. So um, there's Spanish and Portuguese and French editions of some of his titles, particularly the solid form of language. With his selected poems that we've done recently, there's a UK edition and there will be a, a US edition and they're very different from ours. One of the things about Robert is he's quite interested in polyphonic poetry and so we have often um, printed certain poems of his in three or four different colors in order to sort of communicate which mm -hmm. speaker is speaking. And this is not normal behavior for a trade publisher. It's just mm -hmm. very expensive. And I was going to say, you know, whenever I think of that, I think of the Spanish architect, uh, Gaudi. And uh, you look at one of his buildings, and they're so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. They're so inefficient and so beautiful. Yeah. That you almost have to you like you shake your head and in, in, in wonder and laughter. 
I think they're the holy grail of Gaspro titles is probably the original letterpress folio edition of execution poems that we did back in 2000. That would be the first letterpress book I ever printed. In fact, it was complete hubris to take on such a project. But it was about a 40-page folio that was, you know, 18 inches tall, printed on a Vandercook, all handset and Bembo that I bought, you know, type had originally been at the University of Toronto Press at one point. Bought it from a, a, a Don Black in Toronto, put all this Bembo in, in here, and, and started experimenting and learning how to print with this this book by George Elliott Clark that he had put together largely because I'd said, George, do you want to do a letterpress project? And he said, sure, and he put these poems together. And um, we did 66 copies. And six of them were bound in, in calfskin. The other 60 were bound in a, in a paper wrapper. They were expensive. They were maybe a couple hundred bucks. I mean, they were, they were cheap, you know. Mm. Relative to the work that went into them. Relative to the work that went into them and, and relative to, you know, what happened, which was that uh, the book got piles of interest and, and yet we had no trade edition, so we, we agreed, made an agreement with George to do a trade edition, and that trade edition that fall won the Governor General's Award. It has been, I would say, to this point, including The Sentimentalist, our best-selling book, because mm. The Sentimentalist, Douglas and McIntyre may have 120,000 copies in play, but that's Douglas and McIntyre. We've probably done you know, 5,000 copies so far in The Sentimentalist, and George, George's execution poems sold over 6,000 copies over a decade, the trade version. Now, the first edition trade isn't a bad th find either, because they're relatively rare, but finding one of those 66, that's, that would be... Is that the book you're proudest of? No. <laughs> well, the text is an amazing text, um, yeah. but uh, I ended up about two years ago redesigning the trade edition of Execution Poems because I had learned so much since I designed mm -hmm. that book and wanted to do a little better job of it mm -hmm. and then wanted to change the trim size slightly so we did a new edition but the book I'm proudest of that's a hard one I mean I I've done some amazing work with poet Peter Sanger there's a book called White Salt Mountain that he did that is an astonishing piece of literary exploration that, that is a beautiful book too, set in Dante. Tim Bowling's book that we've just done recently called In the Suicide's Library, which is a really a, a book for bibliophiles, and it's mostly autobiographical. It's about Tim finding um, collection of poems by Wallace Stevens with the ownership signature of Weldon Keyes, who is an American poet, in, in the library and discovering that it's relatively undefaced and, and probably quite valuable. So he checks it out and spends the rest of the book trying to decide whether to steal it, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and it launches on him on this exploration of American poetry from that era. This obsession, actually, is he's sort of trying to escape the worries of midlife crisis and, you know, the, the smut on the internet and everything else that's getting him down, you know? He sort of dives into book collecting in a dangerous way, uh, including the ultimate decision of this book he writes, which is whether or not to steal this book from the library. If he's a true bibliophile, he steals it. <laughs> well, I can't tell you how it ends. You'll okay. have to buy the book. But uh, a number of antiquarian booksellers have told me as of late that it's the best book about books they've read in a long time. It reads like fiction, but it isn't at all. So I'm quite proud of that one. It's a, it's mm -hmm. a great book. What about series? And uh, just to, to wind down here, mm -hmm. again, typically a publisher will, will do a series of books or it will work closely with a particular designer or have a selection of books that have a similar uniform look? I haven't done that as much. I mean, I, what we're doing this year, which might fall into that category, a number of years ago we did Jan Zwicky's uh, astonishing uh, work of philosophy called uh, Wisdom and Metaphor. And uh, initially we did it in a sort of 
a run of a maybe we did two printings I think of a of a quarter size, you know, and I, I wanted to have the kind of lectern Bible, <laughs> and mm. it's a, it was a lot to fit into a small space, mm. and we wanted an Alcuin for it, and I decided to sort of redesign it in a smaller five by eight format that was more functional, mm -hmm. more portable, and as a hardcover, you know, sort of mm. ba backwards as usual. We start as a paperback and then go to hardcover. You then, don't have too many hardcovers, though. No, so. it's because we do them all by hand, so we have very limited capacity. So maybe we might we'll do one a year, and we often mm. will release it, a paperback and a hardcover simultaneously, so that you know, we only have orders for the people who really want hardcovers because they're they're slow to make and expensive. But anyway, we did the smaller edition of Wisdom Metaphor, and. Uh, it was quite successful, I think. I found ways to solve the problems of having the peculiarities of the way the book is set, which is that every opening is a, you know, the speaker on the left-hand page is the author, and the speaker on the right-hand page is, is the text she's is responding to, or, you know, what she's saying, or, or she's responding to it. So you kind of have to keep the, this rhythm going. You can't, it's hard to overflow those pages. You had to, fi had to find a way to do it, and, I, and it worked. What we're bringing back into print is a book she did with U of T Press, back in the very early 90s called Lyric Philosophy, which is sort of the prequel to this book. And their design is a set in the same trim size and uh, same you know, typography and, and same typeface by Rod McDonald called Laurentian. But re other than that, you know, I, I kind of I have a sort of reluctance to sort of mm -hmm. design this series. I, I like to sort of come to work every day and bring everything I've learned to bear on the new problem. So it's not a cookie cutter, it's a... No, and you know, yeah. it, it, you'd think that after a couple hundred books you'd maybe start to feel like you knew what you were doing or that it was getting stale or something, mm. but you know, it never is. I mean, there's, you know, even with a typeface, I mean, there's no one way to use Electra or to use, you know, Garamond. I mean, every time you kind of have to reacquaint yourself and acquaint yourself with the problem of the, that the book poses and think about the reader, how it's going to be used. You bring those to bear because, you know, it, it's an old cliche, but there's some truth to it that, I mean, my job really is to be invisible and to, to, to make books that, that do their job, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and do it well and, and for as long as possible, you know, that are going to last, you know. Sorry, that's I, one thing that you, you brought up when we were in the back there, that you still sew all your books. We and, absolutely and a, do. And a book that's sewn will last hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, it, it could la add a millennium to the life of a book because of that, that sort of structural integrity of, of the codex format. When you, when you sort of saw the backs off all those folds and you stick some glue on it, it, it has, what you're it's saying slaughter, is, yeah. well, well, I guess, like, because that's right, because once we raise a cow and kill it, it's not going to do anything more for us either. I mean, it, it, it it's that one usage kind of thing, and mm -hmm. it's, it's a little better than one usage. The glues have improved since the, since the 60s and 70s, but nonetheless, I mean, you are limiting the lifespan of that object dramatically, and, and its function. That's yeah, really important to me. Uh, you know, we spent a number of years trying to find equipment so we could start doing that and then you know every book I did up until I can't even remember what year it would have been sort of you know, 2003 or 4 in there somewhere we finally started sewing but every book after that point I kind of felt guilty about, you know about not quite getting it there mm -hmm. and uh, you know it's funny what one of the things that discourages me sometimes is I look at where we cut corners and we mean we as a culture general, yeah. yeah that's right um, so you look at a poetry book you know coming out these days from a lot of the smaller presses and, and they'll be photocopied essentially. Like, you know, a high-end photocopy, but 
you know, the front to back of the pages don't line mm -hmm. up. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's toner, you know. It's in a way it's not doing justice to the work. We're taking, like, some of the most important, potentially, if you, if you really do believe that literature matters, then we're mm -hmm. taking sort of some of the most important texts in our culture and we're setting them out there in the world for their journey through the ages, ill-dressed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And I don't mean, like, not fancy. I, I'm talking no, no. about with no mittens or hats. <laughs> <laughs> or with mittens and hats that got holes in them or will have shortly. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's just the side of smallpox and blankets, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's not good. And uh, if we really do believe uh, as a culture that, that these are texts worth reading, then we need to step up. Final question. You appear to be a fairly young man. Reasonably young. <laughs> what do you want to accomplish? What, how, what do you want to look back on? What do you, uh, what do you want people to say at your funeral? <laughs> I don't know what I want them to say at my funeral. It wouldn't, wouldn't really matter anyway. Would <laughs> but <laughs> You wouldn't want them to badmouth you, I don't know. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, if, if they're badmouthing me for doing something that I value, then let them go. Yeah, okay. That's fine. <laughs> um, I don't know, I've been thinking about this a lot. My, uh, a good friend of mine who's uh, an astonishing typographic designer, a guy named Glenn Kaluska, is, is ill. And uh, there's a lot of us thinking about that right now, about his legacy and, and wanting to make sure that he knows now while he's still here. He's won a lot of... Uh, of he is the best guy. He's the best guy this country's produced in that, genera in that generation. He's no one can touch him in terms of his design, both both his book design and his sort of exhibition and, and uh, poster design. And he's an astonishing guy, but he's you know he's worked quietly and on his own and largely in isolation. And mm. and uh, he's got to have dark days where he thinks, does any of this matter? But you know, I don't know. I I want to, I want I, I you know in a lot of ways I want the texts that we publish to be remembered more than. You know the fact that we made them well. That's my job to make. You know that's so for me. It's it, it still comes down to finding the best books I can find. The books that that have something to tell us about about being here and being you know in this place. This this on place Earth, or on Earth. at this time. And that's very important to me. And I'm just honoring those texts. Without those texts, I'm I've got nothing. You you answered that the focus was an editorial focus. Yeah, for sure. Because I see them as these roles as connected, which which is maybe the difference between me and a lot of designers, a lot of typographers, is that I I, text I don't precedence. divide these jobs up. I mean, mm. I'm I am the publisher, then the editor, and the the designer, and in some parts the printer, mm -hmm. and I see these things as, as integrated. And yeah. and I honestly, it baffles me, though I know how they keep busy. But it baffles me, for example, that Jack David or Scott McIntyre d doesn't touch a lot of the stuff I get to mm -hmm. touch in making mm -hmm. a book. For mm -hmm. me, making a book is, it's a cradle-to-grave thing, you know, and, mm -hmm. like it's, and, and, and this comes back to the sentimentalists, you know, and not wanting to sort of farm things out. Is that, you know, it sounds stupid to a lot of people, but, you know, I don't want to make a book that I haven't touched it, and I haven't been intimately involved with it in that way. And that's maybe what makes me more of a craftsman and, and less of a businessman. For me, that's what it comes down to. I want my kids to, to learn something about how to, how to live in this world in, in an engaged fashion and to, to get out of bed every day and to make something. It doesn't have to necessarily be physical. I mean, Create something. That's right. You know, yeah. but, but to actually keep their head up you know, and, and keep their eyes open and pay attention. I mean, I think at the, at the very root of what we do, it's about paying attention. I could leave it there, but I'm curious. Oh.
paying attention what to to important works of literature or paying attention to what's going on in Japan and going out and doing something about it or what absolutely all of those things I mean who wants to drink a bad cup of coffee <laughs> you know so many people in their lives level. do though they take that's it. right that's right they and accept what is handed them as okay they met their life out in uh, teaspoons yeah yeah and you know there's this, uh, oh, this great picture in my head of Woody Guthrie you know is this great photo I saw of him once, and he had this guitar, and on this guitar he had scrawled, this machine kills fascists. And, you know, I, I, I feel that way about, about making books, that, mm -hmm. that every time you do something well... Going back to the bomb. The, the improvised explosive device, that's mm -hmm. right, yeah. That, that every time you do something well, that you are um, you're participating in a revolutionary act, and an act that says, I'm here, and I'm paying attention, I'm a citizen. These are important things to me. And you know, this is, sounds surprising in some ways, because I don't wear it on my sleeve in the sense of, you know, I don't affiliate myself with political movements or with, you know, Thing I'm just it. a guy that knows how to make books. I'm trying to, to, I don't know, maybe it goes back to my sort of religious upbringing as a backwoods Baptist upbringing in New Brunswick, you know, where you get this idea in your head that whatever you do, you do it well, and you do it with love and you do it with honor. I mean, that, that, though I'm not particularly a religious human being, that informs, I think, everything I do. You know, that, that kind of passion to do it right, you know, and um, pay it, yeah, and that's what, I guess that's what I mean by pay attention, invest. Because, because so many people aren't doing it right. I mean, I think that's part of it, too. No, and I think it's, they're bored or they, 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 they haven't figured out that the way through life is to engage. You know what? Almost everything worth doing in life is inconvenient. Like it's, you know, there's an easier way to do things than almost everything that's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. When that comes down to relationships with people and you know, how you spend your days, I just think that life's a lot, a lot more interesting than that. Like I, I don't want to settle for bad books <laughs> and bad writing or bad coffee. And, and uh, you can sit around and complain about it, mm -hmm. but it's better to actually take the thing that's within your realm of influence including your job and your family and your, your associations and uh, what you do with your time and to invest in it and to do it well. And that, that becomes both a, an indication of a way forward to everyone that you ever come in contact with and not in some breachy fashion, but just because people get excited about what you do mm -hmm. because you care. The downside is it becomes a bit of an indictment against laziness and against wrongheadedness. And when I get in trouble, it's usually less because I've said something bad about somebody mm. and more because I've angered someone because what I do is in its very uh, act of criticism of what they haven't bothered to do. Yeah, you can't fix that. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I was really glad you could come. I've been talking with Andrew Steves, who is co-founder of uh, the Gaspro Press here in the... Um, uh, lovely environs of Kentville, uh, Nova Scotia. Thanks again. Yeah. Yeah.